Hello, I'm Sean McDonald, and you're listening to Blether. My guest is Tom McGoran. Ninety-five-year-old Glaswegian Tom recently held an exhibition of his incredible oil paintings depicting 1930s Glasgow at the Forge in Glasgow's East End. I was immediately captivated by the detail and the quality of the paintings and Tom's reasoning for holding the exhibition in the first place, to leave his own legacy for those coming behind him. You'll hear Tom tell me about growing up in Glasgow in the 1930s and the environment everybody shared. We talk about the realities of World War II and some fantastic insights into what life was like. And we go over some of the funny and fascinating things that happened in the world the year that Tom was born. Listen out for the Joseph Stalin fact bite. That's my favourite. And as always, there's plenty more. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it with somebody you think might enjoy it as well, because it's a great help. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt senior debt advisor Tom McAllicker where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Right, my first, first question is, you're not actually 95, I don't believe you. Yes, I am. Unfortunately, I would like to be younger, Sean, but I am ninety-five. I have to confess to it. It's uh, it, honestly unbelievable. I, I, I'm struggling to believe it. Well, thank you very much for saying that. Uh, very I, I, kind I, of you. I mean that in the most complimentary way. So, you, right, you're born in 1927. I was, yes. I mean, I've got a list of events and stuff that happened right at right. that point, and some of them are astounding. I'll go through them with people, but first we'll talk about you. So you're born born in Ayr, was it? Born in Ayr. The family lived in a, a cottage in, in Dorai in Ayrshire. Uh, but when it came for my time for me to be born, my mother was taken to Ayr uh, Heathfield Hospital. And on a very clear, frosty night, she lay in her bed looking out over the sea at the heads of Ayr. And that was the night I was born. What was what do you do you remember what Ayrshire was like back then? Cause see now you make the jokes now. I'm like, oh, it's still stuck in the nineteen forties and all that. But I mean, it was. I mean, Glasgow was like a big hub and things were happening. But was it proper like farmland? What was it like? The house that we lived in was just in the outskirts of the village of Dorai. It was just on the road to Kawinan, uh, and it's still there, by the way, the house. Wow. Uh, but uh, when we lived in it. Uh, my father actually worked in Glasgow. He worked for a building firm and he was travelling back and forth between Dorai and Glasgow daily and uh, this became a drain in his wages. It was quite expensive, mm. travelling by train every day and uh, the family decided that it'd be better if we moved to where my dad, near to where my dad's work was. That's how we finished up getting a place in Glasgow. It was through his work, through one of his colleagues in the work, that he was able to arrange to get a house in Denison in Glasgow. But I, I, my memories of, of air, uh, living in Dorai 
I've got a very, very clear picture of one of the events that took place then was my two older brothers, Bob and Joe. And I remember there used to be a, a sort of hill just next to Dorai Railway Station. And they took us there down to play there every day. And I remember they had a, a big sheet of corrugated steel. And they used to haul this corrugated shell up to the top of the hill. And my older brothers, one would go and sit in the front and then put me behind them. And then the other one, he would give the the the, the corrugated steel a shove <laughs> and then he would jump on it. And this thing would down the hill, right to the bottom. And then they hauled it back up and did this. And that's how they spent their afternoons playing in this sheet of steel all day. Simpler That times. was a vivid memory I had, even though I was only four years old. <laughs> you're, lo- you're lucky you made it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, I remember when the time came to move, there was a lorry came to the house to pick up her furniture and my dad travelled in the cab with the driver and I was sitting on his knee. And I remember coming into Glasgow and seeing a tram car for the first time in my life. I thought it was wonderful. Wow. And then we came to this flat in Denison, and that's where we spent my childhood days. That would be 1931. That would be a decade before the war started. Hmm. And I've got a lot of happy memories of those days. See, see in the build-up to the war starting, because <clears throat> obviously... I mean, it goes without saying, Twitter wasn't a thing, the internet didn't exist, TVs weren't in every household. How did you, what are your memories of starting to realise that something's going on? Because, do you know, seeing the year you were born, and I've got so many of these, these um, wee sort of facts and trivia bits I want to go through, right? But in the year you were born, the ban was lifted on Hitler giving speeches in Bavaria and Germany which obviously over the next 12, the following 12 years has gone on to have this domino effect which led to the rise of Nazism, World War II starting, the world at war and, and Britain in chaos. I've hundred questions I would like to throw at you and your recall's got to be good enough to, to answer all of them. When do you start realising, personally and as a sort of society, right, okay, something's something's not really right here? Well, as, as children nowadays... We weren't like as children nowadays. We weren't as brainy as children nowadays. We didn't have the same input to life. Our main aim was to get up in the morning, get our breakfast, out to school, come back from school, out to play, home at night, into bed, and that was it. Mm. We never gave any thought to any political events that was taking place at all. We left that to our parents. It wasn't until I was about 10 or 11 year old I started to realise that things were different, Th- mm. things were changing. And we started to see headlines in the newspapers about Nazi meetings in Munich and that sort of thing and Hitler threatening to do this and do do that. And it was really only about 1938 before we realised that the world is going to be a, an upheaval. Before that, like I say... All we did was think about our own joys. The 1930s was known as the Hungry Thirties. Practically the whole world was in recession. Even the great country of America was finding things difficult. Mm. And we didn't realise 
what our parents were going through. We didn't realise the worries that they had because work was so hard to find and even those that had jobs, they weren't very well paid. You know, companies, they took on people and paid them as little as they possibly could. It's so quite it was like hard today for as well, parents. isn't it? It was hard for our parents to get through this, especially we had quite a big family. There was nine of us all together. And my mum had only my dad's wages coming in. And what she did, she was absolutely wonderful. My mother was a great woman. She was able to get feed us all, clothe us all on one wage and kept us all going healthy. The food we ate was healthy. And we never needed for anything. And yet, she was really poor. Mm. In fact, everybody was poor then. But we didn't know we were poor. Because everybody was in the same boat. It makes me think of that. I think it's the Oscar Wilde quote. I could live with being poor if I hadn't seen such riches. Yeah, exactly. But if if nobody is aware that there is... You don't, you don't know what wealth is. That is your kind of baseline. You just kind of think this is normal. See... Really interesting what you said there. You said about kids just being kids and, and very different to, to nowadays because kids are bombarded with 24-7 news. They hear things on the radio. They are quite perceptive. They've got access to social media. It's probably why they're so stressed out, to be honest. A lot of kids, you see a lot of children have got many issues. They're very nervous, sort of stressed out and anxious. And I think sometimes... People say, our oh, kids are they're not very resilient. And you're like, hold on a minute. You're being, they're being bombarded with global virus um, war going on in Russia. Yeah. The UK is kind of falling apart. I'm quite lucky where, for my generation, I had a foot in both camps because I remember being a kid before the internet was something that permeated our existence in society. And that was my routine, just playing. But then I remember being like 14, 15 and starting to hear constantly about... Yeah, the economy's about to crash. This has gone wrong, and it's yeah. I can I can kind of I can sympathise with kids, but I can also mm. look back and think I remember what it was like to you're just getting up and playing. What what would you get up? How would you play? Because I can't imagine there was if, if there's no a, a wealth of money going about. You can, you're not going to the pictures and restaurants and stuff. What would you get up to? We made our own entertainment. So did we? I love it. <laughs> we we made our own entertainment. And that that entertainment was how can I put it? it encompassed everything. I, I remember some of the things. That we, I, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that sticks in my mind most of all. In those days, the movies, going to the pictures, that was the the the, the main entertainment for the masses. Uh, there was no television or anything like that then. Uh, the radio gave some entertainment and that was where we picked up in the, in the war, listening to the radio and listening when the radio broadcast things about Hitler and the Nazis, the rise of the Nazis in the 1830s. That and the newspapers was the only way we got to know about it. But like I say, our, our, our life was formed mainly of the things that we did rather than the things we heard. When my mum... Uh, when we moved to Glasgow th things were kind of slow at first we had to get used to living in a new environment from a cottage in the countryside to a tenement in a city we had we got to new, new friends 
And one of the things that sticks in my mind was going to the pictures, going to see the cinema for the very first time. Going to the cinema was, was quite cheap then. You could go in for a few pennies. And I, I took a great liking to going to the cinema. Not, not because of the pictures themselves, but I used to sit and look behind me and I used to see a wee bright, intense light away up in a wee window and I used to watch that wee light and say, I wonder what's going on up there. I wonder what's happening in that wee place where the movies are coming from. And I used to look at the decor of all the theatres. I was more interested in architecture than I was in what was going on in the screen. And I, I used to tell my mum about them, and my mother was a great influence on me. Ever since my very youngest days, I liked drawing, and I, every she said every time I looked at you, she said you had a pencil in your hand, you're always drawing things, and she was herself as a good artist, and she took it in hand to guide me through my younger years. If I was drawing something, she would tell me where I was going wrong and what I was doing right. And she t always told me, uh, remember detail. She says, you seem to have an eye for detail. She says, so concentrate on that. Now, as I grew older, when I got to the age of about maybe 10 or 11 year old, like I've just said before, things were hard for our parents. And my mother used to go into, there was a chain of grocery shops called Curly's. There was other chains of shops in Glasgow. Also, Cochran's and Templeton's and uh, Galbraith's. But this firm, John Curley, he seemed to deal a lot in Irish imports, Irish bacon, Irish eggs, Irish butter. And that was the shop that my mother used to go to because she felt that's where she got the best bargains. And she heard the manager saying one day that he was looking for a boy to deliver messages. And my mum says, I've got just a boy for you. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> so she got me a job going into Curly shop on a Friday afternoon after school and then a Saturday morning. The shop opened at 8 o'clock on a Saturday and I worked from 8 o'clock to about maybe 1 o'clock. And my job was to de deliver the groceries of people who had placed orders in the shop. These orders were made up in baskets and were kept the shop, and after school on a Friday, I went in, picked up a basket, there was a, a, a bit of paper on it with the address, of the, a name and address of the person it was to be delivered to, and what was to be paid. So I would lift the basket, take it to the address, hand the messages over, collect the money for it, and go back to the shop, and you usually get two or three pence as a tip. <laughs> Now, this work I undertook, I got two and six for a wage from the shop, two shillings and sixpence. That's the equivalent to 12 and a half pence today's money. That was for a Friday afternoon and a Saturday morning's work. And I gave that a half crown to my mum because with the tips that I got, I made more money than I did wages. <laughs> Now, were, you keep, were you keeping that quiet for her? Uh, were you saying, oh, no, that's no, it? No, 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 she knew about it. She knew <clears> about it. She, she, in fact, we actually came to an agreement. She said, you give me the half crown, she says, and you can keep what you get in tips. Good deal. In fact, sometimes I actually give her more than a half crown. If I had maybe three or four shillings in tips, I would maybe give her three shillings. 
and I kept the rest, which made me quite a rich youngster. Aye, sounds I, I had more money than any of my mates had. <laughs> but anyway, to get back to the story of the cinema, I was always interested in cinema, and there was a shop in the Gallagate, and he had a wee hand crank projector sitting in a window. I think it was it cost about three or four shillings, and I said to myself, "I'm going to buy that." So I went in and I asked the fella if I could buy it. I says, "But I can't buy it all at once." I says, "I would need to pay up to you." He says, "That's okay." He says, if you want to leave a deposit on it, I'll put it aside for you. He said, and you can pick it up when you've got the money. So that made me work all the harder and get all the more tips. <laughs> After about possibly a month, five weeks, I had enough money to pay the rest and I took home that projector. Now, it was a wee silly thing. It was, was hand-cranked and it was powered by a battery and a bulb. And this shop also sold uh, small cans of film, 35mm film, with strips of film, maybe about three or four feet long. And they just fitted my projector, and if I hand-cranked it, it ran for about two or three minutes. And I thought, this was great. I thought, this is wonderful. I used to sit in a darkened room at night, playing my wee projector, <laughs> and I was telling my mates about it, and... They, they thought I was well off. They thought this was marvellous. So wait to tell you this story. We live in a tenement building and in the bottom flat, the outside toilet was at the back end of the close and it was a fairly dark area. And I thought to myself, that would be a great area for me to show the rest of my kids <laughs> a film show, put on a film show for them one day. It was nice and dark and I said to them, I says, I'll put on a film show if each of you are willing to pay a halfpenny for it, a <laughs> half a penny. So about a dozen of them agreed to pay a halfpenny to see the films. So I got the, one of my pals, his father, uh, his family lived at the bottom flat in the close. And I said to him, Charlie, can you get the key of the toilet? to let me in to set up my projector and I'll, I'll show you my films. I says, everybody's paying a hate to come in. I says, but if you get a key, you can come in for nothing. So I more or less bribed them <laughs> to get the key of the toilet and open it up for me. I says, all you have to do is open the door and you can take your key back into the house again. So he did that. And the toilet... Where the pedestal was, there was no seat covering on it like you have nowadays. It was just the, the, the round bit that, that comes down in the toilet and the hole's still there. You can still sit on the toilet. So I placed a piece of wood across it, set up a projector, and I got a white card and put it on the other side of the wall. And I took a halfpenny off all my mates and squeezed them all into the toilet. I think it was about a dozen of them in all together, all huddled up. And then I started, switched on the projector and started showing them the films. And there was one film was in colour. And that was a very rare thing in those days, mm -hmm. to have a piece of coloured film. And it showed a, wood, a woodland with flowers and trees and shrubs 
and the kids were all amazed at seeing this film in colour. I can see why they would be mesmerised by that because it just doesn't really exist unless you go into the cinema. I take it there's this may sound like a stupid question. I take it there was no sound. It was oh, no, just, no, no, there was no sound. I had to speak <coughs> over it. I had, to, I, had, I had to give a commentary, tell them what aye. was happening. No. Well, see, see to anybody listening, the next time you're sitting on the toilet watching a film on your phone, <laughs> I want you to think of what it used to be like back in the day and how, how fortunate we are. Well, anyway, halfway through the show, the toilet door opens and Charlie's father was standing there looking with an amazed look in his eyes. He sees a, a lavatory in the back end of a tournament building <laughs> full of kids with a nutcase showing films against a bit of cardboard. <laughs> Well, you've got to make money somehow. And he says to me, what the hell is going on here? He says, you lot, out. He says, and it's for you, Cecil B. de Bloody Mill. He says, <laughs> get that thing out of here. He says, you're in my toilet. He says, I need the toilet. <laughs> and he threw us out. So that was the end of my filmmaking days. See, um, about your memories of Glasgow and what Glasgow was like because it changes constantly and evolves like even in the last 10 years mm. since since we've had the Commonwealth Games there's been a lot of development and there's lots of pockets in the city like Dilmarnock and East End around Celtic Park where we are right now at Pacific Quay that's changed but the changes you must have seen or the changes you have seen must be Monumental. Sometimes when you're in Glasgow, do you recognise the city for what you, you remember back then? Centre of the city hasn't changed a lot. But round about it, yes, there has been an awful lot of changes. I, I used to go down to Bridgeton quite a lot. I worked in Bridgeton. I worked in Arcadia Sunman Bridgeton. That was, that was my first job. And one of my mates lived down in that area. And he and I used to go out a lot and we came to each other's houses quite a lot. And... Now, now when I go into the same area, I don't recognise it. It has be changed beyond all recognition. Mm. I'm totally lost when I get into the Dilmarnock area. That's nuts, isn't it? I used to live in Parkhead it's, and it's, it's unrecognisable. Crazy. It's crazy. Uh, north of the city, up Springburn Way as well, uh, That that that's all changed. I worked up when I worked in the railway, I worked in the Springburn area, and that has all changed as well. Do you know that... Did you ever work at Cowlair's rail track? I did. Rail bit? Do you know what happened there in 1888? Celtic played their first ever game there. Did they in Springburn? Against, well, it was against Cowlair's, right? So maybe, it, huh? but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And they borrowed a team for Hibs and they beat them 5 No, I can't remember the score now. First first game against Rangers was 5-2, I'm sure. But the first, first competitive game Celtic ever played was it against Cowlair's. And I'm sure it was around about there, or it might have been at the Celtic Park. But well, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure about when Celtic played their first game or where they played it. But I'd never dreamed it, it was anywhere in Springburn. Neil might not have been there, but yeah. Neil Lennon told me that. Cowlairs. Oh. oh well, I'm not going to argue with that. It's it's probably right. You know, it was because it was. We we're talking about the um, he narrated when you used to do the tour at Celtic Park around about 2005. It was him that narrated it and asked him about it and we were talking about the Cowlers thing. Because I always remember the way he said it, Cowlers. Yeah. He's mad, a Northern Irish broad. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think where a football park... The only, the nearest football park I can think of would be Peters Hill Park, which was the home of Peters Hill Juniors. But that, that wasn't in Cowlers, that was actually 
in Springburn. I, and I know Curlier's was quite near Springburn. They were adjacent to each other. Uh, but the, the railway works in Curlier's, I don't know what was there before the railway works came. But I'm quite sure the railway works was there long before 1888. Mm. Must have been. There'll be, there'll be people driving in their car screaming at the speaker like, no, shouting at me, you're getting it wrong. But I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll find that out, I'll think me that one. I mean, he played them in the, I saying here, he played them in the Scottish Cup about a year, uh, 1888, 22nd of September, 1888. Maybe that's it. Maybe that was a Scottish Cup second round, so that might have been the first competitive game then. It doesn't say where it was, played. does it? Does it? Uh, it was played, uh, wait, I'll find it, Celtic's first ever final, so maybe that's what it is. I played at Celtic Park, 7,000 spectators. That's Cowlers it. had defeated Celtic in Celtic's first ever final, Glasgow Exhibition Cup final. So this was a kind of revenge, it says. Interesting. Um, see with the... Wait, no, get the... You know the book No Mean City by Herbert Kingsley Long? I've read the book, yes. 35. Sir. So for anybody that doesn't know it, kind of gives an account of this slum life in the Gorbals, not too far away from where you were growing up in Deniston. When you read that book, and it's talking about the Razor Gangs and and the sort of underworld of the of the city, do you reckon? Did you recognise any of that? Was that accurate? Yes, yes. It was it was accurate to a point. There were Razor Gangs, uh, and they 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 were not not only in Gorbos, they were in Bridgeton, they were in Shettleston, they were they were in Govan. They came from all parts of the city and they, they, their own territory was treated like a fortress. If you went into Bridgeton area and your face was unknown, there was people asking questions about you, <laughs> you know, just in case you were there spying for another Razor Gang, so to be. But one thing about the Razor Gangs, they fought amongst themselves. They, they, they didn't go up and, and, and slash people who had done nothing to them. They had to be known enemies before they attacked you. I mean, uh, innocent people could walk about the street without any fear, but if you're a member of the gang, that was a different story. They all knew each other and they all knew what to expect when their fights broke out and anything like that. But like I say, the ordinary person who didn't have anything to do with them, mm-hmm. they, they, they were left alone. I was going to say, it seems like a wee bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it, to say that there was a code of respectability between violent thugs and criminals, but that was the way it was, wasn't that's, it? That's the way it was, yep. Were you ever involved in it? No. That? No. no. Just straight, no, straight laced? Never got involved with any, any of that at all. Although I did hear of it, that I, I, I remember a family that lived across the road for us, and I, I, I could never be, have any proof of this, but it was said... That, that, that there was two sons in the family and the elder one, he had a reputation of being a, a member of one of one such guy came from Bridgeton. But whether it's true or not, I, I, I couldn't be sure. But that was the reputation he had, that he was a member of a razor guy. Mm. Uh, th- these guys used to keep razors sewn inside the peak of their caps. Aye. So they just whipped the cap off and Swung it across your face and you ended up with a cut in your face. Have you heard of the TV show Peaky Blinders? Have you seen that? I've never seen it, no. no it's, I, I don't watch a lot of television. I don't watch it either. Very popular though, and that it's based on the like gangs in Birmingham of sort of Irish 
um, for the Irish diaspora and that's their kind of thing that's how it's called that Peaky Blinders because mm-hmm. they take the the cap out and slash yeah, you metal. blind you, blind you. <laughs> what, um, you you're right into cinema what were the other kind of things we got up to were you a keen follower of football uh, not not so much I, I played more football than I, than I watched it mm-hmm. when I was younger uh, my other main interest was trains I loved trains uh, I loved them so much that I eventually became a railman Hi. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I should say that uh, when I, I was 14 we left school at 14 in those days and again, my mother was instrumental in getting me my first job. Uh, she knew a man whose son was uh, the chief projectionist in a cinema in Bridgeton, and she heard them saying that his his son was looking for a somebody to be a schoolboy. And my mother said, "I've got just the person for you again." <laughs> she should have been on a major commission. <laughs> she she, 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 looked, she looked after me well. She says. He's leaving school at the end of the year, she said. He'll be 14 years of age, she said, and uh, he's looking for work. So this man says, well, tell him to go down to Arcadia Picture House and see my son and he'll get a job. Now, I left school on a Friday and I started working on Monday. That, that's how, how smart she was. Mm. The, I also remember I was... November time, the 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 actual leaving date was when the schools closed for the Christmas holidays, and a new term started the new year. When the schools closed for Christmas, that was the end of the term. That was when the people who was leaving actually left. So I left school in November, and I started work. Like I say, the following Monday, when I turned up for work. All the boys in those days wore short trousers. And when I turned up for work, I still had short trousers on. So the the the, the name of the chief projectionist was a man called Alec Craig. And Alec took me in, took me into the projection room and showed me all around it. And I thought this this was a wonderful thing. See these two big projectors. I said, I can't wait to see them working. So it, it he explained a bit to me. He says, now he says, your first job, he says, will be to rewind the reels of film when they come off back to the beginning so they can be showed next time round. Mm-hmm. And he says, and I'll show you how to rewind them. So he did. And then he said to me, by the way, he says, uh, have you got a pair of long trousers? And I says, no, I says, this is all the trousers I've got. He says, well, he says, can you not ask your mother to buy you a pair of long trousers? He says, because, he says, you're a working man now. Fourteen. <laughs> Fourteen Just years old with age. A working man. <laughs> I says, oh, I'm a working man now. He says, yes, he says. He says, and you're going to be earning 12 shillings and sixpence every week. 12 shillings and sixpence for a week's work. Now, this is for 10 o'clock in the morning to half past 10 at night. A twelve and a half hour day. That's crazy. He says, but you get two days off during the week. He says, yeah, you get two days when you don't come into your work until six o'clock at night, and another two days of the week where you finish at six o'clock in the night. 
So he says, it's, 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 it's not as bad as you first think about it. I says, well, that's, that's, that's great. 12 shillings and sixpence. I says, that's marvellous. So he said, and you, <coughs> you're on trial. He says, you know, for the first three months, he says, that's all you'll be doing. You'll just be rewinding the films. You won't be in the projection room. He says, you'll be in the projection room, but you'll not be taking any part in anything. He says, every reel that comes off, rewind it back, put it in the box, and just stand by waiting for the next one. And I says, and why am I in trial for three months? He says, well, he says, because of the hours you work, they're very unsocial. He says, and a lot of boys don't like that. Mm. He says, they don't like working at night time. They don't like working on Saturday afternoons. He says, so this is a trial to see if you're going to stay. He says, if you stick it out for three months, then you become an apprentice projectionist. So I, 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 I stuck it out. And he said, right, he said, that's, that's your three months service done. He says, we'll now teach you how to be a projectionist. He says, and your wages will go up. He says, you'll go from 12 and 6 to 15 shillings. Now, that's not even one pound in today's money. <laughs> <laughs> even back then, I would have been saying, I should be getting a bit more here. 15 shillings, but that, that was just, that was a union rate. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's, you had to accept a union rate so would you just get to sit and watch films and that and stuff or were you stuck away back in the room you can't really see no uh, when you're in the projection room you, you, you never think about the movie you never think about it you, you, you don't really see much of the actual movie you're showing mm -hmm. the, the, the idea of projections and, and those days it's all different now of course but in those days the idea was there was a screen there you had a film to show and how that film was presented was your job. Mm -hmm. You had to make sure that the public seen a square properly illuminated with a proper level of sound. That was your main concern. Not what was going on on the screen, mm -hmm. but to make sure that what was there was presented in a, a reasonable fashion for the people to see the movie and hear it as best as they could. See, see when Alec Craig said to you, you're a working man now. I don't know about you, I would have been like, is that right, Alec? We'll get down the pub and get four pints in then. And if that lassie behind the bar says it, just tell her to come up and see me doing a shift. <laughs> I'm in the graft now. No. Curious thing was, in those days, I know kids, boys are thinking about girls now very early, you know, but Aye. we never gave girls a thought. No, no to her about 15 or 16, mm. we started thinking about girls, you know. Even kids was different then than what they are now. So when you if you started getting interested in girls and one of them suggested going to the pictures, you're like, no, please, no, no. anything else. I'm going, to, I'm going to play cowboys and Indians with my mates. <laughs> See, uh, you, you mentioned school, leaving school at 14. What school did you go to? Uh, I went to, my first school was St Anne's Primary School in Crown Point Road. Is that still there, isn't it, St Anne's? It's still there, yeah. In it's fact, still, I think Robert, Robert Snodgrass went not to St It's not in the same location, it's... It's moved over to, it's, it's quite near where it used to be, but the, the Crown Point Road, there used to be a factory, the Acme Ringer factory, and our school was just right across the road from right. it. But the Acme, Finger, the Acme Ringer factory, has that's gone now, and so is the original St Anne's school, but there is still a St Anne's school just, just adjacent to where it used to be. 
and it's one of these wee modern buildings. So mm-hmm. I think it's only for primary kids. When I left St Anne's School, I went to St Mungo's Academy. Now, by the time I went to St Mungo's Academy, the war had started, and the the, the school was in a bit of a mess there because they had lost so many. Of the teachers called up to the armed forces. Oh, bloody hell! Uh, and that, that that's when they, they they started to bring in women teachers. Now, St Mungo's Academy was purely a boys' school. That was in Parson Street in Townhead. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, I was only there for about six months and there was an awful upheaval. Uh, there were too many pupils and not enough teachers to teach them. And they, 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 they started to farm out uh, some of the pupils to other schools to sort of kind of equalise it. Some of the schools didn't have enough pupils and more teachers while other schools had too many pupils and less teachers. Mm-hmm. So I think they started juggling things around and I was transferred to Carlton Junior Secondary School. The building is still there in Kerr Street in Bridgeton, but it's not a school any longer. But that that's that's where I ended up. So I got I I, I was given short shrift at St Mungo's and put down to this Carlton Junior Secondary School. And I stayed there until I was 14, and, and that's when I, I left there to start work. Did you enjoy it, school? Like, what was it like? Because I, I hated school, and I had it gusty compared to what I imagine what it would have been like back well, then. I, I didn't mind school at all, because I, li- I liked learning. I liked to, to, to know things. Uh, I was a nosy bugger, if you like to put it that way, you know. <laughs> I like, if, if a teacher mentioned something to me, I would say, wait a minute, you know, and I'd start asking questions about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I didn't mind school too much. The only thing I didn't like was uh, arithmetic, mathematics. Ah, same here. And there was one branch of that, mathematics. I still kind of get my head around it. And even at my age, I've tried to find out about it. I've looked in library books and everything to find out about what algebra was all about. Oh, I. I hated algebra. Doesn't make any sense. How can a letter Did equal a number? Any, uh, letters and numbers. I could never figure it out. And we had a a red a red headed teacher co- called uh, Stilly. Richard Stilly was his name, and he, he he was a fiery character. And him and I didn't get on well. <laughs> and he he used to say to me when he. he, he he, he taught algebra and he asked a question and I, I couldn't answer it. And he used to say to me, what's wrong with you, boy? Are you stupid altogether? And I resented that. No wonder. You know, I said, listen, I says, I, I, I just can't get this at all. I says, what's the purpose of it? I says, is it going to do me any use in my future life? That's not the point, you know. He says, the point is, he says, you're here to learn it and you're going to learn it. And I never did. I would have said, the point is, Specky, how can letters equal numbers? Mm-hmm. Explain to me that. Yeah. There'll be maths fanatics who are getting dead annoyed at me saying that. Mm-hmm. See, um, <clears throat> you mentioned about teachers being called up to, to the armed forces and stuff. And I think, like, you know, I've, I'm quite really, really, really fascinated by Second World War and, you know, face beginning, middle, end and aftermath. 
and it's very easy to be desensitised because what I'm looking at is black and white images for the most part and it's these very distant accounts. But you saying that about teachers starting to dis- not disappear, but they st- off they go. Off their army, yeah. That makes it very, very real. Mm-hmm. If, if you know what I mean, when I kind of feel that a bit more. I mean, w- what was it like during the war? I mean, when people are away and was it just like, did it seem as if it was quieter and then there's rationing? And there's air raids, evacuations, like all these things. Yeah. Well, there was a shortage of men, that's for sure. A shortage of young men. Mm. You, you're, you were called up to the armed forces when you were 18. Uh, I, I, I was called up in 1946. The war had actually finished, but conscription was still going. Now, during the war... When the war started, it was expected that everybody between the age of eight, 18 and 30 would join the armed forces. Conscription notices were sent out to young men and were taken away, whether they wanted to or not. Uh, in, in some cases, I heard the, some fellows that had refused to go and the police were sent out to escort them. Bloody hell. To, to, to the army officers or a navy or the air force whichever service that they were put into and uh, the bulk of the young men went away to serve the country and of course whichever work they had been doing had to be undertaken by women that's when women started moving into industry they took over the jobs the men used to do women worked in the railway they worked in coal mines they worked in factories and extra pressure was put onto them because all the factories had to gear themselves up to producing wartime equipment like tanks and guns and ammunition and that sort of thing. A, a great responsibility fell to the women and, and they, they have to be respected mm-hmm. for the, the job that they did before the war, during the war and well into the war. An awful lot of young men lost their lives in the war, and we, we, we heard about it every day. We, you'd hear about somebody being killed or somebody being taken prisoner or somebody being injured. My own three brothers that went to the war, uh, John, my brother John, he was killed as a prisoner of war with the Japanese. He went to my, uh, the, the Far Eastern War. What the hell? He was killed there. He was killed by American bombers, by the way. Wow. Uh, he'd been taken prisoner and he worked on the Japanese terror railways. They built railways and they used the British prisoners of war to do the building. Mm. And towards the end of the war, uh, they were told that the prisoners had to be returned to the place where they were initially taken. And John was on a train being taken back to where he had been captured and the American bombers attacked the train, and the train was unmarked. The, the Japanese didn't adhere to the international code of marking prisoner trains with a red cross on top of them. They just put them into an ordinary train, and that train was attacked by American bombers, and it was American air raids that killed them. My eldest brother, Joe, he was very seriously wounded in the Battle of Casino in Italy. He lost his right arm and his right leg at the Battle of Casino. 
and he survived and he lived till he was 94. Oh, it's in the genes then. Yeah. The other brother, Bob, he was a bit luckier. He had gone to France with the D-Day landings and he was a dispatch rider and he got shot in the ankle. You see, a German sniper took aim at him when he was riding his motorcycle, but the bullet went through his leg in one end and out the other. So he got off lightly. It was enough to get him out of the army, but he he was he was the only one that really survived with the slightest wound. That's uh, my I'm, <clears throat> my my mouth is like my jaws on almost on the deck here, mm-hmm. hearing this yeah. even at the D Day landings. Something um, sort of related slightly, but I saw a wee while back um, there was recently found footage for the D Day landings, but it was for German home cameras which had never, ever, ever been seen before. And it's seen it from the other perspective. Oh, interesting. And, you know, I'll, I'll get a hold of it and I'll make sure, I'll make sure you, you get it because it was really properly astounding stuff to see. But so, see, that th- those are the realities of World War II and I don't know if you're aware, but you'll get, you'll get all sorts of uh, talking heads full of hot air on TV or in media and it's straight out of the fascist playbook where they're trying to, um, I don't know, galvanise maybe a far-right faction of society and what they always talk about is the spirit of the war and when they're trying to downplay you know things that are happening for the UK leaving Brexit after Covid the Russian war they always talk about the spirit of the war as if it was this fun time thing and it's brilliant everybody's having street parties and VE day and the reality is it's it's horror isn't it does it, it is it is does it make when you see conflict now or you hear these fannies talking about these things and trying to trying to weaponise something that was horrific and destructive. How how does that make you feel when you lived through it and you suffered the real consequences? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Sean, th- things has, haven't really changed. Uh, in, in those days, uh, propaganda was <clears throat> was just as viral as it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to tell you uh, all sorts of things that, Mainly through the newspapers. We didn't have television then, but through the newspapers and radio, they tell you, they tell you what you what they wanted you to know. Mm. They didn't tell you the bad things. They told you the good things or the good things that were still to come, and they asked people to work together. They used to have slogans like "Dig for victory." They said, "People find wee bits of land. There's a shortage of food." find wee bits of land, wee plots of land where you can dig up and plant your own vegetables and help each other, uh, work together. And, and you know, and up to a certain point, people did exactly as they were asked. Mm. That's where uh, these, these plots started. Where there was spare land, the owners of the land gave it out to people with a promise that if it a nominal fee, they could have a certain piece of land and they could dig it up, plant potatoes and carrots and turnips and that sort of thing. And that helped the war effort in a way. People were more or less together then. Everybody was at war. Everybody was in the same boat. And when air raids came, everybody went into the air raid shelters we were all, and that, 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 that was a, a time it, uh, you could write a book on its own. Oh, aye. Okay. When the blackout came, when the war started, we were told that because there are 
chance that a German bomber might be overhead, which was a lot of nonsense, actually, you know. But uh, you, you, you couldn't let any light be shown. The windows had been blacked out. You, 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 the streets were blacked out. There were no lights in the street. Uh, traffic was moving with the very... Just a slit of light shown for the driver to see what was ahead of him. And it was really a hard time then. But like I say, we were all in the same boat. We were all there. And we listened to stories about uh, help that was coming from America. America, although they weren't in the war in 1939, they did help us very much by sending a lot of food across the Atlantic to us. And, of course, the German submarines would sink their ships if they could. Mm -hmm. But a lot of uh, uh, food, canned food and uh, dried eggs and that dried milk and that sort of thing came from the United States, who, who were, were very good to Britain uh, mm. in those early years, until 1941 when Japan attacked <coughs> Pearl Harbor and then they were into the war as well. Mm. And then it became that the material they were sending over became a flood. It wasn't only food, it was ammunition, it was tanks, it was airplanes, and it was also troops as well. American troops started to come into the country. Uh, and stories about American troops is legend, you know, how they, they got off with the British girls and all the rest of it. But. Uh, <laughs> Oh, it was it was strange times, strange times. Did um, did you know about the the meeting that took place between the nation's leaders in Largs in preparation for D-Day landings? No. Aware of this? So there's a house. The house is still standing, and in fact, I know a person who used to own. They're now flats. I know somebody who used to own part of the house. So the house done in Largs, and this is where it must have been Harry Truman, that would have been the U.S. president at that point, and. Uh, oh, who else was it? It was Truman, Churchill, and there was a couple of other, like it was been military leaders. And the reason that they chose to convene there is it's easier for the Americans to get there. And I think the Germans would have assumed that it would have been somewhere around about the south coast of England. And mm -hmm. this is where they basically had their, their planning meeting. Mm -hmm. And somebody chapped the door. I think I might be wrong. It might have been Lord Mountbatten. And he's chapped the door. And whoever it was that answered that thought it was the kick because he's standing with full regalia and all that. And the person who's answered the door, who owned the house, was they were because they were basically saying, "We need your house. Can we have it?" And the person assumed it was would it have been King George V? King George V, yeah. Assumed it was King George because didn't know what he looked like and seen all this stuff and thought he looks regal, and was like, "Imagine, imagine getting that chap at the door." And then I always say to them, the people that own that house, like Winston Churchill's maybe used your toilet. Like how that's absolutely nuts. And another thing that kind of fascinates me during World War Two, you'll be aware of this, Rudolf Hess, crash yeah. landing. Mm -hmm. For anybody that doesn't know this, Rudolf Hess during World War Two was a deputy Führer of Germany. So he's one under Adolf Hitler and he was a party leader of the Nazis. Uh, and this, I'm trying to figure out what year this would have been. Uh, 80 years. So this has been 19... Must have been right at the end of the war. Did the war end 44? 45. 45. And he was trying to fly, fly to, I think, to meet the Earl of Dunbar. At Eaglesham. At Eaglesham. That's but he, right. And he's crash landed. And do you know there's a police museum across the uh, Candle, I see at Merchant Square. Mm -hmm. There's a police museum. And they've got one of the pieces of the plane that somebody took for that night. No. Which I just think is absolutely mm -hmm. mental. Now, did that news filter back to you? Because imagine hearing 
Yes, I, I remember that. I remember Hess coming uh, and uh, apparently he was apprehended by some a, a farmer or somebody. <laughs> Imagine but, uh, what was going through that guy's head. Uh, but as, as far as the meeting of Lars was concerned, I don't know nothing about that, but I do know that the 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 the, the, the great leaders met up in Colzane Castle at Ayr. Wow. President Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, uh, uh, I don't know if Joseph Stalin was there, uh, but I know that uh, General Eisenhower was there, hmm. and that's that's where a lot of the planning for D-Day was held, uh, the, the decisions made down there at the time. There was a big thing in the papers about it, but I'm coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's because uh, the reason the only reason I know that about Lars is an information board just beside the house. It's near that Viking Gar thing. If anybody's looking for it, there'll be people feel Lars. It's like the far end is if you're walking towards Greenock, and there's just this big board that gives you this information and about the person getting the chap at the door and all that. I thought it was nuts. Um, you mentioned Joseph Stalin there. Yeah. At the, at the end, I kind of want to redo it. Loads of things that happened in the year you were born to to emphasise how much has changed. But in the year you were born uh, was when Joseph Stalin took full control of the Soviet Union and he expelled Trotsky and his acolytes, mm. which is, I mean, try, I'm trying my head around <laughs> almost 100 years ago. <laughs> I imagine being able to say that. You were born when Stalin was rising to full power. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, that, isn't it? I know, it's crazy. Yeah. The, uh, the the thing about, see the guy, the but they found Rudolf Hess. He's obviously seen him. He's like, right, this is obviously this German guy. But he probably wouldn't have known who he was. I think after that, he gets shipped off to Spandau Ballet Prison. Spandau Ballet Prison. <laughs> Shut up, Sean. Spandau <laughs> Prison. Spandau Ballet Prison. <laughs> you can see how I made that mistake. That's gold. It's true. Um, uh, when uh, Hess landed in, in, in Glasgow, it was the headlines of the paper. Every paper had it. What a story. Deputy Führer arrives in Glasgow. And I think everybody thought he'd arrived by train or something like that. <laughs> Until they showed <clears throat> the, the, the crashed aeroplane out in Eagles or Moor. And they said that a farmer had uh, approached him with a, a fork, one of these big hay forks, <laughs> and asked him who he, who he was. And he said that uh, he, he was, his name was Rudolf Hess. And the farmer didn't believe him. He said that uh, he'd, he'd take a, take take me to take me to the police, and he was taken to Eaglesome Police Station, and they kept him in a cell overnight. And of course, by this time, London had got to know about it, and of course, they had sent people to take charge of Hess, mm. and they they had said that he'd come, and the hope he making uh, peace. With Winston Churchill, I wanted to speak to Winston Churchill in the hope of making peace. Uh, but of course, Winston Churchill wouldn't entertain him. You know, bunged him, bunged him into prison. And... Here, it, I've got it here, nineteen forty-one. So probably pretty early, early into the war. Yeah, that, that must um, have been. And he, he flew, saying he flew by himself. Um, he was taken prisoner and he was convicted of his mm-hmm. crimes against peace, and he was serving a life sentence right up until nineteen eighty-seven. He was mm-hmm. alive, and he. He took his own life in, in jail. Absolutely mental. So mm-hmm. I think he was an airman, which is how he had the capability yeah. of flying. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just, man, try to get your head around that. It's like Vladimir Putin crash landing in Bishop Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> mental. Um, the, the 1941, that would be the time when uh, 
Glasgow suffered quite a few air raids. Mm. That's when the bombers started to come. That's that's when we really knew that a war was on. It was a kind of sort of false war up until then. We were hearing stories about air raids taking place away down in the South England. London in particular, they got quite a battering and Coventry and other places. Uh, but 1941 was the year that Clyde Bank got a doing. Well, you know, they say that the the casualties and the deaths were far higher than were reported, mm-hmm. which they didn't want to report for to, to kind of break morale. How did that feel around about the city? Because you would, you would have had a more of a, a sort of feeling on the ground, wouldn't you? We did, we did. We were seeing newspaper pictures of collapsed buildings and all the rest of it, uh, and a high death rate in Clyde Bank. Mm. Uh, Clyde Bank, of course, is a prime target because of the shipyards yeah. and uh, the Sigur sewing machine factory, which was in a war footing. They were producing ammunition and other, other parts that it was needed in the war effort. And then there was uh, petrol tanks down at Bolin. So it was a, a, a prime target for the, the, the German Air Force. Uh, and somebody asked the question, why was there not too much said about it in the newspapers? It was only local newspapers that printed it. Down in England, they had never heard the Clyde Bank bombing. Mm. And the, the answer was that they didn't want the Germans to feel that they had won another victory. Mm. They said they had bombed London quite comprehensively and Coventry had had a doing. And this was well known to the Germans and the Germans was feeding this information to their own people that things was going well for them in the war, mm-hmm. that they had obliterated London and they had bombed Coventry and they said they didn't want to give the Germans another victory. So the Clyde Bank bombing was kind of hushed up, it was kept quiet, so the Germans couldn't tell their people that they'd won another victory by bombing Clyde Bank. Mm, but the, the raids did take... Quite a few lives. I think it was about somewhere in there, about five hundred people killed in Clyde Bank. Uh, well, because um, I've seen sort of claims that it was far higher, which I suppose would make sense. Because over the over the, was, you know, yeah. the passage of time, <clears throat> that that initial sort of reporting eventually becomes fact, doesn't it? Yeah, but kind of accepted. In fact, actually, so I, I'm from Rob Royston. I went to school in Bishop Briggs, and I was reading recently that the Germans had. Um, because, I mean, it's not really that far as a crow flies. Oh, like, no, you're Bish- not near, it's no far. Bishop Briggs to Clyde Bank, mm. and they, they mis- misjudged and dropped a bomb, and it's hit, I think it struck Bishop Briggs Library, and it struck houses kind of nearby. So for anybody mm. for, for that part of the, mm. the city, you, you'll maybe be surprised to know that. Um, as the, kind of the, war, the war ends and it's declared victory for the Allies, what are, you, what are your recollections of the following 5, 10, 15 years? Was there like a resurgence? Did it seem as if a weight was lifted? Was life getting better? I mean, there was was there more cars on the road? How, how, what was it like? Well, uh, after the war... Then up, the, up to the war started, like I said, th- things were very bad for people. The war, in one way, was a good thing because it gave people employment. People, there the, were factories opened up they had to open up to produce uh, bombs and shells and planes and ships and tanks and that sort of thing. So a lot of work was made. And then after the war, with the destruction that had taken place, this opened up again more work for builders, contractors, and, and to rebuild the towns and the cities that had been bombed. And 
things became so much better. In fact, the years after the war, 1941 up to 1950s, things were great. There was plenty of work, plenty of money bouncing around, and people were happier. There was no fighting taking place now, and things were getting better. Uh, there were more things available in the shops, things that we'd be deprived of during the war. Uh, there was an awful lot of stuff. You need to had uh, ration books for a lot of the food, clothing. Now all the all this ration had stopped. There was money available, so people were going out buying clothes and things that they normally wouldn't have buy. As far as cars was concerned, it took a wee bit longer because although the people had more money. They'd got through a war without cars and it wasn't in too much of a hurry to buy them. Except, of course, the car enthusiasts, the guys that, that like driving cars, mm -hmm. they, they, they would want to have cars. <clears throat> but there was no doubt about it, there was a few more on the road than what there used to be. But uh, by and large, things were good, life was good, and that was part of the most enjoyable time of my life. From a year, the war ended until a year I was called up. There were, conscription was still going on at that time Aye. and I became 18 while I, I was I, I just qualified to be a, a fully fledged projectionist I'd got my wee certificate which I've still got at home <laughs> Brilliant. and uh, then I got a letter one day to tell me I had to report to a military depot at Warrington on the 8th of January 1946 Happy New Year, Dafty. That's a swollen, isn't it? Happy, happy New Year, right enough. On the 8th of January, I went to Warrington. I was told I was going into the Air Force. They didn't, they didn't ask you what you wanted into. You know, they, they, they put you in where they wanted you. Mm -hmm. So I was put into the Air Force. <laughs> Air Force? I hardly saw a plane. <laughs> <laughs> what did you get up to then? How long were you there? The the. the I, I, after my, my routine square bashing, that, that was your initial training where he spent eight weeks of battering into a, 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 a barrack square, battering a rifle about and learning how to cut the head off of a German or stab him or something like this. Jeez. All, all this nonsense. Aye. And then they, they, they gave you a job. The first job I got, I was posted back to Helensborough of all places. <laughs> Helensborough. They took me away down to England to make me Seems sure I back. could fight a German and then they sent me back to Helensborough. Uh, there's hundreds of them about there, isn't there? <laughs> and they put me on a maintenance unit whose job was to maintain and repair high-speed launches that were employed by the Air Force Air Sea Rescue Branch. Mm. So I was an airman and a sailor. And the first week I was on that boat. I was seasick every day. <laughs> I was hanging over the side. Oh, and th these boats, they, they, they didn't have much of a draft on them. They were high-speed launches, and they just sat on top of the water. And the slightest waves it was, they were getting up and didn't let us. Aye. You know, I, oh, my God. For a week, I couldn't get over a seasickness at all. That's brutal, But when I did get over it, you know, it was great. I suddenly enjoyed it. My job was to any, any high speed launches that had been damaged or needed repair, 
They were brought up to Helensborough and we had a maintenance depot there. We hauled them up out of the water and did all the work in a hangar. And then we put, we put them back into the water and sent them back to wherever they came. Gosport in England, down at Southampton, that was the main base for the SCA rescue because any of the aeroplanes that sh- got shot down, it was an English Channel they landed up. Mm. I don't think there was many planes landed in the Gearloch <laughs> due, due to a German action. <laughs> but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that life. That was for about the first, the first eight to ten months in my life in the Air Force. And then I was transferred to Oakington in Cambridge. And my job there was all the equipment that the RAF had had for the war and was now redundant because the war had finished. They wanted to get rid of it. So they set up a place where they had auction sales. Now this was in a disused aerodrome and it was a huge, a huge place. Great big hangars, full of stuff. And they held auction sales and invited tradesmen from all over the country to come and have a look around the equipment that was left and if they wanted to put in a bid to buy it and they held auction sales and sold them off. And part of my job was to bring in all the equipment sort it out into lots, section it off, put boards up on it so that the guys could identify what was on sale so that they could make a bid for it. Actually, it was a corporal who was supposed to be in charge, one Corporal Cooney, who was an Irishman. And there's a joke about Irishmen being thick. Well, Corporal Cooney... He would have won prizes for that <laughs> because he was thick, you know. He really, he, he, he just couldn't cope with the job at all. Mm. And he used to turn to me and he say, what about this? What will I do with this? What are we going to do here? And I was telling him what to do. And when the officer came along, he would kid on, he was the boss. But as soon as the officer went away, everyone went back to me again. You're not tempted to set him up for a fall? Nah, 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 nah. He was, he was such a nice fella. He was if he's a nice guy, s- then. Such a good lad. And we got on so well together. He used to take me down and buy me a pint now and again. So <laughs> I was quite happy with that. That's not a bad trade-off. And then the Russians blockaded Berlin. At the time when Germany surrendered and Berlin was divided into... Three parts. Three parts. British, Russian and American. And the British part was in East Germany. And when the Russians blockaded Berlin, Britain couldn't get supplies through to the east. So Russia allowed them to open a passage where they could fly planes, but it had to be through this passage no other way, to a place called Lübeck, where we sent the supplies and the, the job at Orkington was now turned to loading the planes to take material to Germany and flying back again. It's like an air bridge, just mm-hmm. a constant supply of everything they needed. If food, medicine, equipment for work, and every, everything you could think about had to be flown into East Germany through this window in the sky, as they called it, uh, to keep the people of East Germany supplied uh, that was, and, and the British centre. That was, that was the when the Berlin Wall went up. That remained until about 1989, yep, that passage. That's right. Aye. That's insane. Aye. 
just, nope. when, just when you think, right, okay, the world will calm the fuck down a wee bit, then the Cold War yeah. begins. That that was my final job in the Air Force. Uh, when we first got called up, we were told that national service was for two years. But just before my two years, we were just thinking about getting demobbed when the Germans, when the Russians blockaded Berlin, and the RAF decided, well, the government decided that everybody in the armed forces then waiting for the mob had to serve an extra six months. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my God, I've got to have another six months in here. But my six months turned out to be a year, hmm. an extra year. But somehow or other, I, I didn't <clears> mind it because I was quite, in, I actually enjoyed my life in the Air Force. Mm. It was good. And it was even better if you could play football. And... I was pretty good at football. Every camp I went to, I managed to get myself into the station team. And in the RAF, if you could play football, you were special. Mm. You got reduced duties and everything else. <laughs> because if you're due to play a match on Saturday, you could go out and say to the officer, oh, I can't go on guards duty on Friday. Why not? Because I'm playing football on Saturday. Oh, right, okay, right, right. Just you go and take it easy, train up and get ready for Saturday. We'll get somebody else to fill special, your job. Special dispensation. S special treatment. No, it should be. Exactly. So that 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 was that was one good thing about it. I got to play my football. Uh, and like I say, my six months extended to a year and I was demobbed on the 31st of December 1948. So that was from the 8th of January in 46 to the 31st of December and it's happy 48. New, happy so New that Year's was Day once three again. Years, but nine days. That's a shift. Three years, but nine days. And then get yourself up the road. Is that when you started working in the railways? Did that... No, no, I went back to the cinema business. I was, I was in the cinema business uh, until 1950, 19... Wait, it's a 46 about, must have been 1949 or 1950 and that's when television started to show mm. its ugly head and that's when cinema started to close down they were, they were turning a lot of them into bingo halls and I thought to myself I better go out of here I says because if the cinema's all closed down there's going to be an awful lot of guys looking for work mm. So at that time, I decided, and a brother-in-law who worked in the railway, says, why don't you get a job in the railway? He says, it's good. He says, it's a, it's a, it's a good job. He says, you don't get an awful big pay, he says, but he says, but you do get a good laugh. <laughs> he says, so, so I said, well, I says, no harm in trying. So I did. I joined the railway, and he was quite right. You didn't get a big pay, but you did get a, a, a lot of laughs. <laughs> I mean, a, la a laugh's worth its weight in gold, isn't it? To oh, be honest, if that's oh, where you're spending your time oh, every day. a lot of nutcases in the railway, you know. <laughs> a lot of great guys as well, mind you. I mean, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying they were, they were all daft, but uh, the, you, you could write a book on what happened in the railway. Have you, have I you thoroughly enjoyed my life in the railway as well. I, have, have you done the uh, 
the tour at Central Station. Oh yes, twice, brilliant, brilliant. twice. Yeah, I was fascinated. For anybody that doesn't realise, there's a tour that was it was originally devised and curated by Paul Lyons, um, <clears throat> and you find out the history of the station and its involvement in World War Two, John F. Kennedy staying at the Grand Central Hotel, all these things. It's really really fascinating. But they discovered a a Victorian disused platform in the lower level, and I mean they found. I mean, Paul putting up pictures. This is circa 2014, 15. And he was putting up pictures of stuff he was finding. A Daily Express, which warned of tensions rising in Germany because it was 1933. <laughs> they found like a packet of fags and cans and the, the tiles and the posters. No, it's just time capsule that it just remained there forever. It's fascinating stuff. I think, I've got, I think that's probably why I wanted to speak to you so much. I've got a fascination with <coughs> people's recollections mm. of the past. Well, I've, I've given Paul some uh, some material I had in the house from my railway days. Oh, have you? Uh, they're, they're building up a museum. So ah, I, so I, I right. gave him some books that I had and some timetables and waybills from the way back in the Glasgow Southwestern days. Uh, it's, it's stuff like that. It's, it's, it's not any used to be lying in the house. Amazing for people so, to see. It's, it's, they, they've got it in the museum now, you know. Because when, when I did the tour, it was in its sort of first incarnation, so it's evolved and developed so much. So, it has, it has, it's, it's a, I believe it's a lot much better now than, than it was before. I'm going to go and see that. I'm going. I'm definitely going to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we we fast forward to '88, which then was the sort of precursor to how you and I are now sitting talking in. 2023 so you're made redundant and you get given a a, a gift for your, your retirement gift that, for your wife or is that, it something that, to keep you occupied right. like I say right, right from my very youngest days uh, I liked to draw and any colouring I did it was only by wax cranes I'd never used any paints or anything like that in, in my drawings and uh, of course my wife knew I, I, I was quite good at drawing and I was made redundant. I was I was only sixty years old. I, I, you're supposed to work till you're sixty five, but I was made, the, the, the railways was in the throw of changing from being publicly privately owned to public ownership. Mm. They were they were talking about nationalisation, and uh, they were always reorganising things, trying to save money, and were heading towards uh, selling off the railways. And again, I thought to myself, it's it's not not a good time. It's if there's a time comes to move, now now is that. But I, I, before I got anything done, I was made redundant, mm. and I was told that they, they were going to give me a, a golden handshake. They were going to set me off and let me do my own thing. And I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do now? And when I retired, my wife gave me a present. It was all wrapped up, nice, nice paper, and it was quite heavy. And I said, what's this? I said, a retirement present for you, she said. So I opened it up, and it was a box of oil paints. And I said, I've never used oil paints. I, I, I don't know anything about oil painting. I, she says, well, she says, you can always learn. <laughs> She you says, you've you got plenty of time ahead of you. She, by the way, she was still working, Sean. Uh, she was six years younger than I was. And uh, she said, you'll have plenty of time, fill in your spare time. So I did. I bought a wee book, How to Use Oil Paints, and I read it, but it didn't really do anything for me. I thought, with trial and error, 
I'll do it my own way. And so I did. I just kept making mistakes, but learning from my mm. mistakes. And I kept painting pictures. And that exhibition I had, that's, that's a, a result of, mm. of the whole thing. So t- to fill the listener in, you had an exhibition at the Forge where you, you um, displayed your paintings, which I'm just looking through the now, right? And I'll turn around so we can both look. The biggest compliment I can give you, right, is I could spend easily about an hour looking at each painting because the detail is unbelievable. So I'm looking at the one here in Glebe Street, Townhead, right? And you've got stuff going on in all the windows. The colours are so nice. Each person's got a different dress. They're wearing something. They've got a different expression. Right down to the people on the bus, the advert on the bus for the bulletin. I'm assuming that was a newspaper that back was a in the time. Yep. You've got a bakery. Uh, now we come down here. This one, gone to the pictures. It's just amazing. And this one, the wedding scramble. Right down to, so there's an advert on a wall, <clears throat> a sort of mural, and it is a coming soon, gone with the wind. So this is just like a snapshot into your memory, which there we've got John Curley, Grocers, Electrics, which must have been a very new modern store at that time. Stephen McAvoy said, went to see his stuff in the Forge. If you haven't already done the interview, can you ask him if moss slander is an important feature of his art? Because there seems to be, they've got this here, the, the mum that's a bit annoyed about the broken window. <laughs> uh, and you've got the mum shouting and I think and a kid to come at the back. This is another one that I thought was amazing. <laughs> Going to the steamy. That seems as if it's it's sort of way back in your earliest memories because you've got the horse and cart and yep. stuff. <laughs> see, when you're, when you're painting these, are you literally just going for like the window of your mind? Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. And there, 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 are no any, there are no photographs at any particular place, but it could be any place. No, they could be. They could be Springburn, Govan, Shettleson, Bridgeton. The way I see it, and here I'm looking as well, right down to, we've got, we've got graffiti, right? Mac. <laughs> Mac is a shag, so is your ma. <laughs> that was the sort of thing that appeared in walls Aye. in those days. We've got Jerry Martin, Kate Burns, who are they? I don't know. Sorry, I thought there were maybe people <laughs> you paid homage yeah. to. They're just, the detail is just absolutely incredible. And the oh, my know, goodness, my Guinness thing, I love that. that I, I, I said to you earlier, Sean, that my mum was a big influence in my life and she was a good artist as well. Mm. And she guided me through my early days and she used to tell me about details. She said, you seem to have a good eye for details. She says, so don't forget that when you're you're doing drawing. She says, put the detail in. She says, especially if you're drawing a building. She said, go and look at the building. Go and see it. And when you draw it, make sure you get the detail right. She says, because if you don't, somebody's going to criticise you on it. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to come along and say, that's no right. That's wrong. She says, so don't give them the opportunity. Get the detail right. And I've still got an eye for detail. Mm. Whenever I go out and I've a look at things, I look at the small things, I look at the detail of the building or whatever it is I'm looking at and I get that and, and fix it in my mind. Most of those paintings of the 1931 era, they're just memories of things that happened back then but the places that I put them in the buildings that are there the streets that are there they're all just out of my mind they're, mm. they're, they're just imaginary 
but it could be anywhere. It could be. There could be a street like that, or well, even a street of the same name. I think the the fact that they're so detailed is one thing, but the fact that they're homogenous in a good way, they could be anywhere and everybody. I think that's why you can completely relate. I'm the same as you because I'm fascinated with architecture and detail and design and building it's the wee things that I look at yeah. that I'll, every time I look at it and I'll say to my pal who'll be bored me by now and I'll be like somebody's hand chiselled that somebody's done all that by hand <laughs> and it's all these wee details and it's the same for me in conversation anybody can tell a story and that's great but not everybody can get into the wee nuances and details and s- small memories and that's yeah. that's what makes a story stand that, that's out that's important I think. yeah it does I agree with you it's um, the, the, the link. Those those paintings, uh, every painting that I have done, tells a story in its own, mm-hmm. uh, and that that that's my legacy <clears throat> to the world. Uh, Is that why you wanted to have the exhibition? When, when I started painting, I, I thought to myself, "Now, what am I going to paint here?" I said, "When I was younger, I used to copy Walt Disney characters: Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs." Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Goofy and that sort of thing. I used to paint a lot of them, but I say to myself, but this is somebody else's work I'm copying. It's not my own work. I, I need to find something that is original and which I can say is mine and mine's only and not be copying other people. Mm. What can I think? What can I do? And then I thought to myself, well, my childhood was quite colourful. Mm the things that we did when we were young and the things that we did when we were growing up, this is something that when my age group dies, all these things are going to go with us. They'll be forgotten about. And I don't want that to happen. I want people to know what life was like living in the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s. So leave a story for them. Mm. Tell it to them in pictures. And that's that's what I did with, with my collection of paintings. It's been done phenomenally. The, the link for anybody to come and look, and, and this isn't even an invitation, it's more of a command. You listening, go and look at these paintings because you will be absolutely captivated by them. They're fantastic. Are, are you printing them as well? You've got, uh, Will they be up for sale? Well, hopefully the prints will be up for sale. Hmm. Now, See I, when they are, let me know, and I'll share it and make sure people know where they can get them as well. Well, there's a man there that will be able to fill you in on that because... That's your personal assistant. This is my personal... I've got, <laughs> I've got three personal assistants, two sons and a daughter. I'm handing everything over to them. They they, they can look after this. Yeah. Uh, all this computerization of things, the uh, websites and iCaps and all the rest They're totally beyond me. There's uh, only so much uh, uh, information that enormous brain can retain, adding in all these new technological advances. Well, uh, I'm, I'm only sorry they didn't come sooner because I, I remember being able to, more able to register my mind now, mm. but I'm, I'm too old to be thinking about this thing. My, my mind's too lazy now to get stuck into all <laughs> this. If there's anything your mind is, lazy is not one of them. Uh, um, that that is, it's been amazing. I, I just you sh- even sharing this, that was partly because when I read them and I saw and I got in touch with young Tom as well, I was like, I, I need to have this conversation. It's just so many questions, and, and this insight is priceless. It's invaluable, and it's it's sadly thin on the ground as well. So it's been amazing that you've you've come in. Honestly, I, I couldn't be more grateful for you sharing it all with me. 
Well, thank you for that. It's very, I've been very enjoyable doing it with you, Sean. Uh, I hope it's uh, no, done, pe- done good for some oh, people. Pe- people will love it. We'll finish on something a wee bit fun, right? As I said, I'm going to read out the events of the year you were born, or some of the ones that I thought were, were standouts across the world, across the UK, and, and in Scotland and in Glasgow specifically. Work begins on Mount Rushmore. Right, so this is the sculpture of the four US presidents yeah. that's carved into Mount Rushmore. It's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. That's just, I mean, that's something everybody knows. Here's, right, the first non-stop flight across the Atlantic was Charles Lindbergh flying the Spirit of St. Louis. He flew the, from New York City to Paris. That's right. Uh, yeah. A lot of people had lost their lives trying to do this. This was a single-seat, single-engine yeah. Aeroplane, and he's he's done this. It, it took him thirty three hours, twenty nine minutes, uh, and he arrived. Yeah, May twenty first, which is just absolutely incredible. We think um, it was more remarkable when you realise that one in every two pilots that attempted to cross the Atlantic was killed, mm-hmm. and he so he's done that. Mm-hmm. The world's first tel- electronic television is created. Oh, that was a few years before, but I, I went with that one. Philo Taylor Farnsworth. The vacuum cleaner and the traffic lights also invented. Did you know that? That's incredible. Um, Errol Dixon, a Johnson & Johnson employee, created something. His wife kept cutting herself when she was cooking and he created the first adhesive bandage which went on to become what we now know as a plaster. <laughs> <laughs> the one I said about Joseph Stalin taking full control of the, the Soviet Union uh, is just insane. We, we banishing Trotsky. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The UK suffered an influenza epidemic. A thousand people a week were dying in the oh first dear. first part of the year. So you're lucky that you... Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, you're lucky you missed that one. King George V was on the throne. Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. Yeah. Any recollections of him or was he away shortly after you were born? Yeah. No. US I, I, I know the name, but I don't know a lot about uh, him. US President was Calvin Coolidge. Never heard him. Mm. Let's go to Scotland. The first ever Scottish Cup finals broadcast live on radio. Celtic beat East 5 3 1. As I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, Green's Playhouse opens in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Largest yeah. cinema in Europe. That's right, yeah. 12th of July, the Kelvin Hall opened. And the King George V Bridge on the same day. Um, we had former Celt Willie McStay was playing for Scotland in 1927 that one stuck out for me because his younger brother Jimmy played for Celtic and so did his uh, great nephews Paul and Willie mm-hmm. Paul McStay mental what football and dynasty that is and Willie McStay yeah here's a few others the Harlem Globetrotters played their first ever game in uh, in Hinkley Illinois yeah, yeah. can't believe that's been going that long basketball huh? Uh, British government sent troops to China protecting their interests so they say in January 19th uh, February 12th they arrive in Shanghai US and Canada opened diplomatic relations that's how long ago that was can you imagine US and Canada not being cooperative with each other Oh God, it's hard to get head around as I said Bavaria lifts ban on Adolf Hitler's speeches Pan American Airlines now defunct makes their uh, their inaugural flight Babe Ruth becomes the highest player in Major League Baseball history, 70 grand a season. When you get players getting that a day now. Getting that. Some of them getting that an hour. Three times that a week. What? Look at, by the way, look at this. So Bavaria lifted the ban in Hitler's speeches on March the 10th. 
By March the 19th, bloody battles commenced between communists and Nazis in the streets of Berlin. So we saw how that one panned out. So, I mean, it's, that's kind of come back to the point I was making about the paradox of tolerance. How oh, everybody should have a say. I'm afraid fascists shouldn't they? And, mm. and it's not it's not silencing free speech. Mm. Um, Spain routes 20,000 soldiers to Morocco. Tensions that exist to this day. I lived in Barcelona for years. The Spanish and the Moroccans don't, do not like each other. A lot of racist tensions between them. Canberra replaces Mel- Melbourne as the capital of Australia. And the Australian Parliament convenes there for the first time. Um, and this one... I thought was fascinating. What, what What's your birthday? 22nd of November. Ah, right, OK. Because in May, the 18th of May of the year you were born, I think it's Grauman's Chinese Theatre opens in Hollywood, California. Mm. That's where friend that doesn't know where all the handprints and you have like famous right, premieres aye, and stuff. It's on the pavements. Aye. Mm. Um, and also born the same year as you, Arnold Clark, car dealership, Roger Moore, third actor who's portrayed James Bond, Don Revy, Leeds United and England manager Tom Tiny Wharton Scottish Hello football referee, referee. if you google Tiny Wharton handshake you'll see him and John Gregg rubbing each other's hands strangely <laughs> in the centre circle I wonder why <laughs> they were doing that six, six feet tall he was you know, built like a house <clears throat> do you know the favourite story I've ever heard about him Bertie Old says he's playing Tiny Wharton's a ref and he says he's giving decisions against him all day and he says Mr Wharton can I just ask you? He's like, your, your performance has been terrible. And Wharton's like, listen, Bertie, I don't want to hear it. He says, no, look, I just want to ask you a question. If I called you a bastard, would you send me off? And Tiny Wharton says, yes, I would send you off foul and abusive language. And he says, right, well, if I think you're a bastard, would you send me off? And Tiny says, well, no, I couldn't, because you'd only be thinking it. And he says, well, I think you're a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I think you let him stay on. <laughs> Aye, aye. So a, a remarkable Almost a hundred years It's just incredible And the fact that I don't mean to be condescending in any way But the fact that you're Recalling yeah. all this to me is just remarkable You make me feel old for you say I'm no. nearly a hundred years old Yeah, you're a young man You're as young as you feel And uh, I tell you what In the uh, in the spirit of Corporal Cooney <laughs> Right, Mon, I'll get the pints in <laughs> a pleasure thanks very much well thank you thank you for having me Sean I've been enjoy being here and I'm glad I did it I'm yes, glad I did it me too and thank yeah. you for listening and as always we'll be back with another but not as good episode of Blethered next week <laughs> cheers right thank you bye now <laughs>